Your choice is simple. Join us and live in peace or pursue your present course and face obliteration. Hello there, and welcome to episode four of Skeptics and Believers, a paranormal podcast. In this episode, the team and I will be discussing UFOs, such a varied, wide subject that we've just decided to focus on a fairly small part of it. Um, But we hope you do enjoy that small part. So sit back, relax, and we hope you enjoy the show. sent Mike an interesting news piece that was on the BBC website. You did. It was about a Scottish pilot who, on flying his Airbus to Glasgow Airport, detected there was something flying directly underneath him. The pilot said it posed a very real risk, despite nothing showing up on his radar. The UK has a body which is called Airprox, which apparently is responsible for looking at any potential air disasters any of the documentation and assesses whether or not there was a near miss. They looked into it and couldn't find any establishing information that was an object there, but the pilot stated it was blue, yellow and silver and was about the size of a weather balloon, which made me laugh slightly because um, it does sort of sound like it could have been a weather balloon. The Airprox board had been of the opinion that the object was unlikely to have been a fixed-wing aircraft, helicopter or hot air balloon given that it had not shown up on the radar. It was also thought that a meteorological balloon would be radar significant, which I think is a posh way of saying that it would have shown up on the radar. Yeah. Well, they're quite big. Weren't they quite low down, though, when this thing went underneath? Well, he was just coming into land, and the pilot thought it was about 300 feet below him, which apparently, in aviation terms, is pretty close. I'd say for me, personally speaking, that I think UFOs fall into three camps. Camp one, I would say, is black ops style prototypes, planes that are, you know, being tested. The other th- the other camp I would say is atmospheric events and misidentified weather equipment, such as the old excuse of it being a weather balloon. And I'd say you know, the third camp is genuine UFO, things that can't be explained. Now, I started to have a look at what was one of the earliest sightings of a UFO. And one of the earliest sightings that's quite well documented is in 74 BC, and it was by a Roman army commanded by Lucilus. Um, he was just about to enter battle and noticed a, a huge booming noise. This was followed by a flame-like body descending on a shaft of light between himself and the opposing forces. The opposing forces were the Mithridites of Pontus. Above the shaft of light was a wine jar-like object which resembled molten metal. Both Lucilus and the Plutarch forces reported the exact same wine jar-like shape, known as a pythos. Don't have them anymore, but it looks like a big terracotta jug, basically. Now, what was really, really interesting was that in 1959, 
the Mercury space capsule was being tested and one of the guys who was involved with the project used to say it resembled an oversized wine decanter. So I think that's kind of weird and a bit coincidental that a space capsule produced in, in modern times pretty much mm. you know, matched the description from uh, 74 BC. But that's, know, that's, that's pretty coincidental, though. You, you know, it's, I don't think that the two are necessarily the same thing. And I think that the key thing from the first story is the whole flash of light thing. It's yeah, probably, it's, a, it's probably a meteor or something, isn't it? You wouldn't know what the hell that was. Did you see the footage from Russia when the meteor shower happened? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. Exactly. That, that, that is, you know, a, a good explanation for what a lot of these things might be, because that is frightening. But with where that story's concerned mm. the the key there because i was thinking exactly the same thing as you when eddie mentioned the booming noise and then uh, a flaming like object yeah. but then when he said about it very specific in the shape of the object that it looked like molten metal you never see meteorites looking like that because obviously they're traveling so quick but also because they're burning up in the atmosphere you wouldn't get to see the actual physical body of the meteorite. No, but will they not leave? Will they not leave the equivalent of um, jet stream, of vapor trails behind them? Yeah, yeah they will. If, if they went through a cloud, they? would they not ignite a cloud and leave strange patterns in the sky? I don't know enough about how meteorites work, to be honest. I imagine two thousand years ago, anything yeah. falling from the sky. Yeah, like it's going to be all pretty odd. Yeah. But, but I just thought the reason why I thought it was quite coincidental about the you know the more or less the sort of modern day equivalent was I wonder if that means there's any sort of insider knowledge within the US government in terms of what a space capsule from out of space would you know would look like that actually didn't make any sense what I've just said I think I know what no, you mean. Yeah. You're trying to say, what if the Romans captured this thing and gave it to the Americans <laughs> because they're all Illuminati lizards who live in caves under the ground? Two and a half miles. Essentially. <laughs> no, I think the point I was trying to make was that if something had landed in the States in relatively modern-day terms, that we would build something that we knew was feasible for our own people that had been copied from elsewhere. A bit like when the Chinese blatantly copy the Americans Everything. with aircraft carriers, submarines, Drones. aircraft. Yeah. Possible, but I think it's more than likely that the Mercury space capsule was designed the way it was for aerodynamics because obviously it sat at the top of a rocket. Well, the whole point about it was it was the ability to come back through the Earth's atmosphere. Anyway, that got me thinking, what were the world's top five UFO sightings? So what I thought I'd do is I'd compile some of the world's top sightings. I thought we could have a bit of a chat about them. So the first one is 1942. It's in Los Angeles. And it had only been a few short months after Japan had attacked Pearl Harbor. On the 24th and 25th of Feb, aircraft were seen over Los Angeles. And the American Air Force basically sent all these planes up to intercept them and despite everybody on the ground seeing all these lights taking lots of photos when the planes were up in the air they couldn't find anything i know about this this is known as the battle of los angeles for which anyone who's seen the terrible film with michelle rodriguez recently it's loosely loosely based on it she's never been in a terrible film not in my opinion (laughs) only the fact that it features in los angeles (laughs) um but yeah, um, there, there are photos of this where the searchlights are on quite a large object over Los Angeles. And I think like they, they were artillery shells were fired at it for two nights in a row. 
Could it's very have. well documented. So it was there day and night? Only on the nights, I believe. Yeah, oh, it came and went convenient. both nights. We have got some photos that what we'll probably do, we stick up on, the website. on the website. Yeah. yeah. What is it about UFOs that they only seem to show up at night? What is it, why do they that's, not- not, that's not true. Really? Is it not? A lot of unidentified flying object sightings do take place at night. Um, when you can't identify them. Yeah, I myself, <laughs> I have seen, I've had two, two experiences of UFOs. There were objects in the sky that I did not know what they were. One of those happened at dusk and the other one happened at night. And when it's, when it's night and it's dark and you're seeing bright lights in the sky moving in a strange way, well then the first thing you're going to think is, well that's UFOs. But part of it could be because at night time you're more, you're more aware of the night sky, aren't you? I mean, during the day, if you see something moving in the sky, you're just going to assume why it's an aeroplane, isn't it? Or a bird or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite interesting, actually, because the next one on my list is in 1946 in Sweden, and this actually happened during the day. It's known as the ghost rockets. It's when between 2,000 and about 2,200 suspected ghost rockets started landing in Sweden or were seen flying through the sky. Happened during the day, it lasted for three days from August the 9th. At first, people assumed that they were meteorites, but then several newspapers started talking about them being UFOs because of some of the strange descriptions that people on the ground were observing, such as that they were moving in erratic ways, they weren't coming straight down, they'd go horizontal, then vertical, then horizontal, then vertical again. There was odd electrical sounds... Um, and also some of them were very, very slow to fall from the ground. One person observed that one took nearly two hours to come down and then they drove to the site and there was nothing there, so there was no impact of a meteorite, and that was all during the day. So there's no actual physical evidence that these things landed? No, but there was an absolute ton of photos of people. Yeah, a lot of these things, because a lot of the time it's, you know either lights in the sky or shiny thing in the sky which essentially is lights in the sky moving in a in a particular form are there theories about it being like the aurora borealis and things like that it's like an atmospheric phenomenon yeah so you know the way that light glints off clouds and comes through the moisture in the sky and all that kind of stuff that we just really don't have a, much of an understanding about well i'm pleased that you mentioned that because my next example was in 1951 in a place called lubbock in texas You know, you were talking about lights in the sky. This was three professors from the Texas Technical College who'd been out and basically were star-spotting of an evening. They started to notice a massive V-shape made of between 20 and 30 lights, which was uniformed in this V-shape that was moving about the sky. There was, I think, a good 50 photos taken by students who were out and about. And I see what you're saying about naturally occurring light, but this, I mean, these photos we'll put on the website. This one was a very specific V-shape that maintained this V-shape, despite the fact it was moving all over the place. Could that not be explained as migrating geese? If you look at how some birds migrate, they do fly in a v-shape especially geese do one of the things as well is that if well i say you know if they if they're not long out of the water and lights reflecting off them they can give off a bit of a a, machine machine yes these are quite i mean the photos i mean that they're 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 black and white and i'd say unless the geese were wearing led headbands (laughs) these lights are pretty bright and i mean they're uniform to the point of being you could you know they look like it's a structure 
yeah. up, up in the air. I it, think one one of the reasons why I have to try and think about what they what they would be would be if if there was something that didn't want to be seen, why would they have bright lights on them? So you know, why why do they then just disappear and no one ever sees them again? I think it could be like an exhaust light or something. Yeah, sort of thing. or possibly. Yeah. Or you don't know what kind of energy that these craft are using. It may emanate some yeah. kind of. Like, let's let's take two two examples. Either they're they're military things and they're either reflective, so they're shiny, or they overheat, or they they've got lights on them. Then the the government aren't doing a very good job of hiding this thing that they're testing. Or the other side is they're aliens. They're crap aliens because they're just going hello, look at us, look at all our lights, and then never coming back again. Well, just because they've got the technology to travel across the galaxy doesn't mean that they've got a cloaking device. Or a way to turn their lights off, like a switch. Well, the thing is, a good example to take is brake discs on a sports car. Right. If okay. you go and watch Formula One, touring car, anything like that, when a car comes down a straight and it slams on its brakes, the amount of energy that's put into those brakes and dissipated by the brake pads, those brake discs will glow. They'll glow like bright orange. Yeah. So what if the power source that these craft are using means that the the craft does generate some kind of luminescence. But then why wouldn't you have seen them again? Why'd they just come down for a few hours one night and then... Well, who's to say that they're not appearing in all these other sightings all around With the, the world? lights off. They remember to turn the lights off. Well, I mean, I think what I would... Yeah, I, I suppose a sort of a real-world, or what we know is a tangible real-world example, would be things like sort of fireflies that only breed for, like, one night, you know, every year... That's a sort of a you know a sort of a, an example of it happening in nature. It only fire happens geese. once. <laughs> well, fire geese. Well, the other I mean the other one you know you talked about the government sort of being sort of not very good or not very aware of it. The next one I mean sort of did spook the government. It was in 1952 and it was in Washington D.C. and it was actually more or less straight over the White House. It's referred to as the Washington Flap. And it was spotted first by an air traffic controller who noticed between seven and nine aircraft in the air. They were bright orange lit and they flew and hovered over the White House for some time. So much so that President Truman went on the record as saying that he wanted to know what was going on and if it was a military experiment, why was he not aware of it? He never seemed to get any answers, and it's one of the things that in his later life, when he was interviewed on TV, you know, he talked about the, you know the weird and mysterious nature, and he actually thought at the time it was an invading force. But again, I mean, there's quite a lot of photos, and they are sort of they're almost in a bit of a uniform shape, yeah, glowing well, bright orange. That's one of those, you know, whenever anybody says the government in relation to things like this, they always assume American government because they're the they're the only people who would ever want to hide any high tech stuff. But you know what I mean? It could be the Russians, it could be the Chinese, it could be the Japanese, it could be anybody else with a decent amount of money and technology. So yeah, I mean, I you know, it, it it's unexplained, but somebody somewhere knows what those things are. I'm sure. I think you've got to think of it. You've got to think of it in the context of, I suppose, when it's happening. It's 1952, Mm. and at this point in time, I think it was very much a sort of two-dog race between the sort of the Russians and the Americans. Mm. And I think it would take an awful lot for Russian jets, planes, whatever you want to call them, to get over into sort of United States airspace, but then to get them over the White House as well. Well, that leads me on to the final one. I thought we could have a bit of a smackdown fight about who should really sort of jostle for the number one spot. 
It's between Roswell, New Mexico, which is probably the most well-known UFO sighting, mm. but also uh, one which I've never ever heard of before, which is the Belgian UFO wave, which has got nothing to do with 1980s electronic synthesizer <laughs> music. So if we t- talk about the Belgian wave, this actually happened in 1989 and also 1990. There was 143 eyewitness accounts, which were all more or less exactly the same. That's quite a lot in one year, isn't it? But the thing about these planes were that they were black triangle crafts with very distinct lights. But what is even more interesting, I think more so than all the others, is that because it's relatively modern day, all of them were tracked by NATO and also the Belgian Air Force on radar. So they tracked and they've got uh, records of all of these things flying about. No explanation was ever given and it's said to be the best tracked photographed example of a UFO ever. Is this the one where the picture is of a big black triangle with three points of light and one big one in the middle? That's the one, yes. And there's quite a lot of other people uh, having taken photos of exactly the same thing. Again, we'll stick some photos Mm -hmm. on the website. So that's that's my sort of new contender versus the, the classic, which is Roswell in 1947, when uh, several law enforcement officers found debris from a supposed experimental high-altitude surveillance balloon. Whilst I think it's the most famous UFO incident, I don't think it was as well-reported as the Belgium techno-new wave UFO invasion, but it's found its place in pop culture. The thing with Roswell is that when it was first brought to the attention of the media, the United States Air Force themselves said it was a crash flying saucer, only to be recanted several hours later. Now, you see, I'd I'd read about this in prep for this because I thought it might come up, but how I'd read about it was they hadn't said it was a flying saucer, they'd said it was a saucer, and that was the term they used for the experimental weather balloons, and that's why they recanted it, because everybody thought flying saucer, Mm. because people had already started to have a an impression for what that meant and therefore UFOs, aliens... Is this an example of research scepticism? I'm loving it. Yes, I do do this. But yeah, so that that's the explanation. That's the official explanation, is that's why they said it was a saucer, because that's what they called it internally. And they mm. said w- w- one of the saucers has crashed. But then you have witness statements from people who claim to have been working at Edwards Air Force Base. Indeed, but if you remember in our last episode, you had a witness statement of a man who said he saw lizard men living underground with laser guns. I don't, I don't know. I don't necessarily trust witness statements from people who claim to have worked at top-secret research centres because they probably didn't. And no-one's going to come out and say, yes, you did, or no, you didn't. OK, uh, I, I quite like the Toblerone story, the, the ones in Belgium. So we're going to give it to the Belgium chocolate spaceship, new wave 80s. I would. I, th- I think Roswell's been done to death. Belgian chocolate. Yeah, the problem with Roswell is every, everyone knows about it and you can't you can't really talk about it because everyone's... I don't really know about it. It's Where the balloon why, crashed. That's why I was, yeah, everyone that's why I was said it was quiet. space people. I don't really know that's about it. UFOs. <laughs> the, I mean, the, the only thing I'd say about Roswell, which I do think is quite interesting, was the accounts given of wreckage that was found... And there was a police officer there who apparently, even though he shouldn't have, kept some of this stuff. And it was like foil, which apparently, if you folded it up, it would then spring back flat and would have all these weird and strange properties. And apparently some people came and sort of took it off him. So there we go, the Belgians have it. Excellent.
do hope that you enjoyed our episode on UFOs. I can promise you there will be more UFO-centric episodes coming up. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the podcast. And if you have, then thank you ever so much. We appreciate the support. Hopefully you'll stick around for next week's episode, which is about ley lines. So from me, Mike, many thanks for listening and do take care of yourself. podcast has been brought to you by obsidian shark productions the music featured in this podcast can be found at freemusicarchive.org and is used under the creative commons license more details can be found on our website